Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. At Dave's Archives, he personally transfers, archives, and preserves classic commercials from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s and shares them with you. Don't forget about his Friday Night Live stream on, well, guess when? Go to davesarchives.com. By RetroCirc. Take a not-so-silent journey through millennial and Gen X nostalgia with RetroCirc. Look for them on YouTube under RetroCirc, spelt with a Q at the end. RetroCirc, where the Q is not quiet. And by the very generous benefactors who grace us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast, including Rhonda Farrell, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Michaud, Man Mojack, Meredith Morrissey, Justin Moses, Rabbites, Spare Parts, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. regular bloodbath as we approach halftime in the Hell Dome for Hell Bowl 3 billion as the four horsemen of the apocalypse are single-handedly annihilating the competition by a score of 11 million to 3 against who else? The New York Jets, who more than likely had to sell their own souls just to participate in this competition. Quite a game we've got going on here, narrator. Quite a game we've got going here, narrator indeed, Scott. The horsemen are simply just dominating everything, thanks in no small part to their quarterback, the Horseman of Conquest. He, along with his partner in crime and wide receiver, the Horseman of War, are pretty much responsible for every single score we've seen here so far. All the while, the Horseman of Famine seems a little too weak to contribute anything significant. Like, seriously, he should eat something. For real. While the Horseman of Death, well, he's just lying there motionless, but still contributing defensively as jet after jet after jet just trips over him, causing them to record a massive amount of fumbles, turnovers, and interceptions. To say nothing of the fact that the Horsemen have scored so many times in this game that they've run out of footballs to kick field goals with and had to resort to using heads from the deceased to make them. And when those ran out, any fractured skull from nearby skeletons would do the same in a pinch. But you can't fault the Jets completely here, Scott. At least they're putting in more effort here than they did in the infamous 1996 season when they only won one game, leading to the turnaround the team would experience when Bill Parcells took over as head coach the year after. And now it's officially halftime in the Hell Dome. And if you're into ear-splitting torture that'll make your brain bleed from the inside, you're gonna wanna stick around for this year's halftime show, being led by the Banshee Band. And for legal purposes, we must mention that this is in no way related or affiliated to the band's Banshee, the Banshees, Susie and the Banshees, Cities and Dust, great song by the way, or any other band whose name just happens to have Banshee in it. This group is an actual band of actual Banshees that have been upstairs in Hell's waiting room trying to find out what their overall punishment will be for the sins they committed. They've been practicing their wailing and moaning for an eternity and can't wait to see what they've got. As we take you live to midfield. Ladies and gentlemen, the IFL, the Infernal Football League, in association with Coleman Francis Productions, is proud to present the 2024 Hell Bowl Halftime Show. 
proudly sponsored by Hindenburg Airships, the 1974 Ford Pinto, and Spirit Airlines. Starring the Banshee Band. I'm never going to make any jokes about Yoko Ono ever again as long as I stay dead. This group's awful. Yeah, it could be worse. We could be listening to an hour of the emergency broadcast system tone. Oh, believe me, I've been through even worse than that. Nearly 60 years of that big football game, and especially their halftime shows, I've seen some doozies. Like Nipplegate, right? Oh, we covered that one a long time ago. <coughs> Episode 11. I'm talking more about those halftime shows that were less about who was performing and more of a what-the-here-am-I-looking-at kind of thing. You know, things that are more overblown spectacle than anything of substance. You mean things like embarrassing production numbers that even a self-respecting dinner theater wouldn't touch? Precisely. And for reasons we'll get into in a moment, it's those very pieces of spectacle plus a number of outside factors that cause the league of football-related nationalities to pivot their halftime show from over-budget high school plays to practically a 15-minute mini-concert in the middle of a football game. Does this mean what I think it means? You better believe it. It's time once again to do some punting as we double-doink the goalposts and reopen the doors to... The Big Game Hall of Shame Halftime Show Edition. And now, Live from Tampa Stadium, it's the first ever all-kids Super Bowl halftime show! And now, lock it in and rip the knob off. This is Telehell. And before we go any further here, allow me to introduce our special guest. Take it away, special guest. I don't know how special I am, narrator, but I'm Scott Mason, the host of the Play Like a Jet podcast. I do podcasts about the New York Jets football team seven days a week, 365 days a year, except on leap years. So if you're a football fan or a Jets fan, feel free to check me out anywhere where you can download podcasts. And of course, we've got our website, playlikeajet.com or social media at playlikeajet1. And unlike the previous versions of the Big Game Hall of Shame, where me and my guests talk about infamous commercials that air during the game, this episode is indeed going to be about that other part of the game that everybody talks about aside from actual football, the halftime show. And just to get all the historical crap out of the way first, the halftime show at the Big Game has seen a bit of an evolutionary process that would make Charles Darwin blush. Beginning in the 1960s and continuing right up until, say, the early 1990s, the halftime show was a continuous rotation between various high school and college marching bands, various dance and performing art troops, and the full-body dry heave simply known as Up With People. Right 
Right up to the year 2004, when the wardrobe malfunction scene around the world took place, most of the halftime shows would also have a theme attached to their performance. Most of these themes would either be salutes to various slices of Americana, tributes to styles of music from years gone by, a simple hope for peace on Earth, or something that would take a couple tabs of windowpane acid to truly appreciate. Regardless, for about half of the big game's existence, the halftime show was seen as nothing more than an excuse to use the bathroom and refill the snacks, a trend that other TV networks began to notice in the 90s. Which, more or less, is the other reason why I wanted to cover the theatrical halftime shows instead of the other ones with actual music. Sometimes it's just easier to grab low-hanging fruit than it is to rag on Maroon 5 for a full hour. So with that, the ground rules for this show is simple. Unlike our two previous induction ceremonies, halftime shows are a little more complex to cover than a simple $5 million 30-second ad. So instead of eight inductions, we're going to be talking about three halftime shows today. After a brief background on the shows, I'll do a play-by-play -play of the activity, and then we'll discuss what the here we just saw, no matter how jaw-droppingly bizarre some of these shows are simple as that. But what if we come across somebody who actually has talent performing an actual song? Won't you get zapped for that? Fear not, fellow Jet fan. That's what I got my trusty fast forward button for. And besides, pretty much all of these performances involve music in one way, shape, form, or another anyway. But I do see your concern. So with that, we can listen to anything theatrical as opposed to anything a pop singer does, blah blah blah, copyright, 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 etc, etc, etc. And since we want to rip into these shows as soon as possible, let's take care of our nine circle requirements right now. Just as the case when covering commercials, the big game is frequently the most expensive and most money-making time of the year for the network that airs it, making more than enough hand over fist to keep themselves in business for several years, even if the content of the game falls a little flat in the ratings. So, as always, the big game offers a one-two punch of revenue-driven greed and viewer-powered gluttony, both visual and, presumably, also the food they consume during the game. And in the case of some of these halftime shows, viewers may have complained a little loudly. So much so that their overall wrath towards the performances may have caused the football people to change their game plans more than once over the decades. Other than that, Scott, any last words before we begin? It's too late to buy some noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> Down here? You're lucky if you can come across two Dixie Cups with a string attached to them. If I get to be tortured for all of eternity, you're riding shotgun with me. Unless you'd rather join the Banshee Band at the 50-yard line. Point taken. Then there's only one question left to ask. Are you ready? Halftime? Yes. Yes, we are. Induction number one. As we just mentioned, so-called theatrical halftime shows began to fall a little out of style by the end of the 1980s. What seemed like quaint entertainment in the game's first two decades was fast becoming antiquated and unwatchable. Slowly but surely, the networks that aired the game had to come up the latest in state-of-the-art technology to convince people to watch every single square inch of the game, no matter what. What NBC and the football people tried to do during big game number 23 in 1989 was certainly different, but perhaps a little too gimmicky. 
Though, what else would you expect from a production company called Magicom Entertainment, who somehow managed to win over the football people by saying, Hey, let's do a magic show at halftime of the biggest event on television! But wait, there's more! Why don't we set all this magic to something that everybody watching the game is sure to enjoy? Music from the 1950s. Well, that might appeal to some older viewers, certainly. But what about those who were not about to turn into Soylent Green? Fear not, because the football people partnered up with Diet Coke to come up with a way to get at least 26 million people to tune in to the halftime show. And that is by manufacturing 26 million 3D glasses. You heard me correctly. This was going to be the first ever halftime show to be presented in 3D. In addition, Diet Coke would also be responsible for having the first ever TV commercial to do the same. If you follow us on our Patreon at Telehell Podcast, look up a mini show that we did on 1995's gimmick called Foxorama for more of a primer on the history of 3D technology on television. But suffice to say, at least this was a bit of a curiosity in spite of how lame the overall show would be. A mashup between 1950s music, homages to Elvis, and grand-scale magic tricks in a calamity simply known as Bebop Bamboozled in 3D, which begins with journeyman sports anchor Bob Costas telling us what's about to take place slash warning us of impending doom. You're about to see an elaborate music and magic spectacular featuring tunes from the 50s and hosted by the immortal Elvis Presto. Elvis will perform the biggest ever card trick where folks in the stadium will select a card and it'll be revealed in a most unique way. It's almost too exciting to bear, isn't it? Well, if you've got the special 3D glasses, now's the time to put them on. It's Bebop! And right off the bat, we've got probably the biggest flaw being exposed in front of an audience of billions worldwide. The fact that magic tricks can only really work in small, intimate settings or reasonably sized ones that are enclosed structures. Unless the audience of the game is watching it on the Jumbotron, trying to do magic tricks in front of a crowd of 60,000 is beyond chaotic. Which, more or less, is why we have a semi-authorized Elvis impersonator doing most of the grunt work, and without singing a single Elvis song. Okay, that one doesn't count because Elvis may have sung Blue Suede Shoes, but Carl Perkins is the one who wrote it, so that gets a pass. For the next few minutes, it's pretty much a combination between 50s music, poodle skirts, quick changes, and fever dreams, culminating in what's being billed as the world's largest card trick. You pick your card by clapping hands So everybody in the stand Let's hear it for your card Because your choice depends on your applause You're gonna pick a card with applause You're gonna pick a card with applause 
Which card it's gonna be depends on just how loud you clap, my friend. Card one, two, three, four. Now clap for the card that you don't From there, we get a wide shot of the stadium and four giant playing cards on the field. The three of diamonds, the two of spades, the jack of clubs, and the king of hearts. Gee, a halftime show being fronted by somebody who's cosplaying as the king of rock and roll, and those four cards to choose from. I wonder how I wonder what the audience will pick. Was a king of hearts the card you chose? Only Mr. Presto knows. Prepare for my most mystifying feat. The card you chose is under your seat. For his most mystifying feat, the card you chose is under your seat. So this was less a magic trick and more predictive programming for those attending the game. Harry Anderson would be rolling in his grave, I'm sure. So let's wrap this up. This goes on for 12 more minutes. And that's all this show was. A magic trick that wasn't a trick at all, and about 12 minutes worth of 50s hits being bastardized by the body of a solid gold dancer and a voice that doesn't match. The only consolation that I'm going to give this one is the fact that Bob Costas seems to be paid to be genuinely pleased with everything, even though there was clearly nothing to be pleased about. Niners three, Bengals three, in 3D. You never thought you'd see the moment when Don Shula would appear this way on national television. Can I take these off now? Is it over? <laughs> I, I believe it is, Coach. There's a whole new world out there, though, Bob. Although only moments ago he said to me, show business is my life. And we'll be back after these messages from your local stations. Okay, Scott, you just saw what I just saw. Now, let's make like a magic trick and saw this one in half. This perennially makes it onto lists of worst halftime shows of all time. In fact, I want to give a special shout out to YouTube channel Set the Edge for inspiring us to do this episode, largely because he too ranks this show as among the worst of all time on his Super Bowl halftime tier list. The two questions I find myself asking is, number one, why? And number two, no, seriously, fucking why? Actually, better make that three questions. The third being, who was this supposed to be for? I'll be honest, I have no idea who this was supposed to be for. I didn't watch it with the 3D glasses, to be perfectly honest. I would imagine that it would have made the experience even worse. But this was the strangest thing I'd ever seen until we get to what we watch later on, because that was even worse. It gets crazier and crazier as we progressively go through these halftime shows. But to have a performer named Elvis Presto, who looked like this weird Las Vegas lounge act, and you couldn't tell whether he was trying to do magic or sing, and they were trying to do the 3D effects, and it all was so cringe. And then on top of that, you had Bob Costas, this very serious sports broadcaster, who's trying to sell this to you like it's the greatest thing you've ever seen and be sincere about it. And to his credit, he did the best that any human being possibly could selling this, but it was ridiculous. And like I said, until we watched 
the other really bad halftime shows, I thought this was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life. But of course, somehow these halftime shows have a way of outdoing themselves. Induction number two. The year after the world's largest 3D experiment on television took place, the powers that be in the football world wanted to keep things a little simple and a lot more traditional. By this point in time, the big game had been played in the Big Easy seven times, and each one of them had been a crowd pleaser if not a blowout score. So, for the 24th big game in 1990, the football people and a company that's now called Select Productions decided to go back to basics and have the performance be dedicated to the music of the area, largely jazz and Dixie Band swing. And as is custom with the halftime shows up to this point, the entertainment was provided by residents of the area. Various Louisiana University marching bands, certainly, but also NOLA legends like Irma Thomas, Doug Kershaw, and the one and only Pete Fountain. So in essence, the show was going to be a safe choice to play in the background while the rest of the country did their refilling and refueling. Or at least that was supposed to be the plan were it not for some last minute synergy. The game was to air on CBS that year as one of the capstones of something that their sports division would label as the Dream Season, which, by the way, we'll go into more detail on this week for you patrons out there. Short version, 1990 was the one and only year when CBS Sports had the rights to practically every major sport in the Western Hemisphere. Not just football, but they were also in the final year of their basketball coverage, still had the rights to golf, college sports, and NASCAR as reliable standbys, secured the rights to the 1992 Winter Olympics, and even dropped a cool billion to air baseball for four years. Which I guess means they couldn't look under their couch cushions to build up enough pocket change for the rights to hockey, but it was still one hero of a sporting lineup. Suffice to say, starting with the big game that year, it was all downhill from there. But it's not the sports coverage that hampered the halftime, nor was it the blowout score of that year's game. No, this had more to do with something else that was a mainstay on CBS for almost as long as the big game itself. Nineteen ninety also marked the fortieth anniversary of the long-running comic strip Peanuts. And while I can only speculate that CBS had asked the football people to do something Snoopy related to their football coverage, I can't help but think that this was more than just a coincidence that the network's most popular set of holiday TV specials would wind up sharing the stage with the biggest audience in all of television. So now, instead of the halftime show being just about the music of New Orleans, they decided to shoehorn in Charlie Brown as well, which I'm sure will also be pretty seamless. Take it away, Brett Musburger. Well, it's hard to believe, but it's true. Charlie Brown is 40 years old. Creator Charles Schultz first put pen to paper way back in 1950, coming up with the Peanuts gang. Charlie, Lucy, Linus, Schroeder, and the world's most beloved beagle, Snoopy. Super Bowl 24 dedicates its halftime spectacular and a real New Orleans-style celebration to the comic strip characters we love. And I'm sure with an introduction like that, the Peanuts themselves will be presented with just as much dignity as- Look at this! We're invited to celebrate our 40th birthday at the Super Bowl! We're going to the Super Bowl! 
Despy and Misiger Productions, in association with the National Football League, salutes 40 years of happiness. Yes. 40 years of happiness featuring a comic character who can use a fistful of Xanax once in a while. But I digress. As probably the most synthesized Dixie band strikes up, even though you clearly see band members using actual instruments, a collection of sun-melted Peanuts costumes on loan from Knott's Berry Farm take in the celebration. Wow! What a great birthday party! Okay, everybody, let the good times roll! Oh, like you would know what a good time is, Charlie Brown. The synth Dixie Band plays on, as we are once again treated to more dancing, more costumes, and even some awkwardly superimposed animations of various Peanut characters popping up randomly on the screen, as well as the curiosity if the Doritos I've been eating were laced with mescaline. As we continue to pay lip service to the South, fortunately we've got fiddle maestro Doug Kershaw taking center stage. as a longtime fan of jazz, blues, and music from the South in general, I've got nothing against Kershaw's performance. If anything, I'm super distracted by the larger-than-life Lucy Van Pelt dancing with everybody. To say nothing of the awkward timing of trying to put an animated interlude into a live TV event, there's a shot of Woodstock doing some kind of stomping to the music that begins superimposed on a shot of dancers, but then quickly moves to a shot of a stool that they had in the middle of the field. That's meant to give the impression that that is what Woodstock is stomping on. I guess you could argue that, as a bird, Woodstock was flying for a split second, but I can only suspend disbelief so far. We get more marching band music. This time it actually sounds like a marching band instead of some synth crap. But minus points again for just how awkward it looks as Charlie Brown tries to outdance one of the marching band leaders. Come to think of it, You'd think that at a major football-related event, they would actually have Charlie Brown kick a football for once. But I'm sure we all know how that'll wind up anyway. <laughs> anyway, the parading goes on for another two minutes until we get Wax Museum Schroeder at his toy piano playing an introduction for our next guest, the proclaimed soul queen of New Orleans, Irma Thomas. Which we will now be skipping. Not because of any fears of copyrights, but because, you know, we're in hell and soul music is not exactly approved down here now, is it? You want to know what is approved, though? Take a listen. Yep, they're still at it as we close things out with a number of southern standards, including Up a Lazy River, Here Comes the Showboat, Where the Saints Go Marching In, and also Waiting on the Robert E. Lee. Thankfully, without Robert Goulet singing it this time, though, given the circumstances, it might have actually made this show slightly more bearable. Oh, waiting on the levee, oh, waiting for the Robert E. Lee. Of course, let's not forget the real reason for this halftime show in the first place. The fact that Charlie Brown gets to spend his 40th birthday in New Orleans. Something I wish I had a chance to do when I was still alive. Nonetheless, we get a happy birthday to you, to the Peanuts gang. 
and we can shuffle this halftime show among ones that we can acknowledge existed, but probably did not need to sit through. as sensory overloading as the magic show, I would still induct this one simply because of how much the dual themes of the show clash too much with each other. Adding peanuts to a show involving the music of New Orleans would have made about as much sense as adding actual peanuts to Jambalaya. Sounds good in theory, but it ultimately leaves an odd taste in your mouth. If the show itself was just about peanuts or just about New Orleans music, we probably wouldn't even give this one the time of day. But because the football people in CBS were none too eager to make a brundle fly between theatrics and synergy, this is what we wound up with. A spectacular show from the Louisiana Superdome, and we will continue right after these messages from your local stations. Your thoughts, Scott? This was what I would imagine an acid trip would feel like if I ever dropped acid. This is the most confusing thing in the world. You start off with this Peanuts tribute, then this weird musical number as these Peanuts characters walk around, and then out of nowhere you transition to a gospel number, and then back to the Peanuts characters, and it's like we said with the other show, what in the heck did we just watch? But this was even weirder because at least in the first one you sort of had an idea of what they were going for. This one had like three different themes rolled into one and they were putting it all under the same umbrella and it just made no sense and my head was spinning by the end of it. Of course, it did get weirder in the third one that we watched. Somehow it got even worse, but this one was just unbelievably bad and it made you wonder who it was that would have greenlit something like this. Also, as an aside, with all the adults that are in the room performing with the Peanuts, and especially with a horn section, not one of them didn't go womp, 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 womp. The whole thing was completely confusing, narrator. And to be honest with you, when I was watching it, my head was spinning so fast that I almost saw a Jets Super Bowl trophy in there. That's how fast my mind was spinning and my eyes were rolling because I felt like I was practically hallucinating from all the different things going on at once. And as you said, the insult to injury was not even capitalizing on what they had in front of them, which is the potential football references and the Womp Womp involving Charlie Brown, which is the character and the series of characters from Peanuts that they said, that they claimed they were paying tribute to in the first place. Makes no sense, mind boggling all the way around. And that signals halftime in this halftime show dedicated to halftime shows. Let's check in on that other halftime show happening downstairs. Is it normal for my ears to bleed like this? <laughs> It'd be abnormal if they didn't. Mine do all the time down here, though that might be more for atmospheric conditions versus the noise. We'll score once again. Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, 11 million, New York Jets, three. And while we pack Scott's ears with gauze, we'll take a look at a halftime flop that pretty much helped to rewrite the rule book. After the break. When we asked Reebok to send us Terry Tate, some people thought we were crazy. But I'm a firm believer in paradigm breaking, outside the box thinking. Hey, buddy. 
And since Terry's been with us, our productivity has gone up 46%. We're getting more from our employees than ever before. You know you need a cover sheet on your TPS reports, Richard. That ain't new, baby. Hey, Terry. Hey, Janice. But what's really impressed me is how Terry's become part of the Felcher family. He fits right in here. That's a long-distance call, Doug. To be honest, I wish Reebok sent us 10 Terry Tates. You want to play game machine? Well, when it's game time, it's pain time, baby. This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. For those who dare to dream, CBS Sports 90. This year, experience the most celebrated lineup in the history of television. A year of unbelievable sports action, and in 92, we go for the gold. The dream season, only on KDKA TV 2. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast for just a few bucks a month. You can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to this week's torture. Are they ever going to stop? Considering they've been suffering since eternity began, I think it's just something they need to get out of their system. Anyway, let's continue. Induction number three. You would think that, with the subjects we've been discussing so far, that the next logical step would be to cover the halftime show that took place in 1991. Ladies and gentlemen, boy do we have a show for you! And it's an all-kids cast! And now, live from Tampa Stadium, it's the first ever all-kids Super Bowl halftime show! The halftime show, known as Small World, which was a 25-year salute to the big game, did have a lot going for and against itself, not unlike its predecessors. But there are three reasons why we're going to be skipping this one. First, this was the first halftime show where, with the exception of the headliner act, was performed primarily by children. While we in the underworld have taken down kids' cartoons in the past, taking down child actors themselves might be a little too cruel even for us down here. Or, just so that we can get our Simpsons requirement out of the way for this episode... Think of the children! Won't somebody please think of the children! Second, the headliner of this halftime show was... New Kids on the Block. And Satan knows we've made more than enough jokes at their expense a few weeks ago. Third, and perhaps more importantly, 
This big game happened to be taking place during a big war, as Operation Desert Storm was taking place as this was airing. And thanks to our armed forces everywhere! For those three reasons, as well as the fact that patriotism was at an all-time high during this event, I think we can give this one a pass, and instead leapfrog right over to the next year. We already foreshadowed a little about 1992's halftime show earlier, but now that we're actually here, it's time for the how and the why. And, like many of these shows, there's a number of factors in play. First, the fact that this was another big game airing on CBS, who, as we mentioned, landed the rights to the 1992 Winter Olympic Games in Albertville, France. So naturally, CBS wanted to use TV's biggest platform to help propel themselves to a potentially bigger one one month from then. Add to that the fact that the big game was taking place in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a cold place most winters, but thanks to the late, lamented, and also insulated Metrodome, they could get away with putting the game on. That and the city was still riding high from the Minnesota Twins winning the World Series months earlier. So with those factors in place, local production company Timberline Productions was charged with the duties of putting the show together. A show that would spell the beginning of the end of halftime shows as we know it. And so, at the half of big game number 26 in 1992, we're ushered into a world full of... Winter Magic! And who better to lead the proceedings than a pair of ice skating ambassadors? Dorothy Hamill and Brian Boitano, because Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir were not fully formed caddy adults yet. Hi, everybody! Come on and feel the cold! Come to Minnesota where winter's the hottest time of the year! It's Winter Magic! And basically, if you know what the first two halftime shows we covered were all about, then you would think you'd know what to expect here. And in a way, we do get exactly that. Pomp, pageantry, and a number of circumstances in between. This is really no different than all the other theatrical halftime shows of years past. Annoying musical numbers? Check. Embarrassing costumes? Double check. Dance numbers that would make Bob Fosse rise from the grave only to keel over again? Check to the third power. So hopefully you get my point. Nothing about this show is really different from all the other stuff that we've covered so far, save for the fact that this took place in late January of 1992, and this spectacle is keen on wasting broadcast airtime on singing Christmas carols a whole month after Christmas ended. Something else that all these shows have in common that I do need to give a saving grace to, all the other performers who appear in them. I don't mean the headliners, but all the dancers, the marching bands, and even the technical crew involved in putting the shows together. As cheesy and as stupid as these shows are, they're still seen as a point of local pride for those who participated in them, no matter how savage these shows got in the press. In 2018, when the big game returned to Minneapolis, a couple of local TV stations caught up with those who performed in the show. 
and they seem to recall having the time of their lives. I remember the whole thing being um, just pure fun and excitement. These are just a few of the dancers from Larkin Dance Studio who auditioned and made the cut to perform in the 1992 halftime show Winter Magic. Hanging out with all these people crammed into this spot underneath the bleachers, you could hear the crowd, but you know, you were just under them. So it was very fun and unique for a kid. I was dancing for the Timberwolves and then I was hired as part of a four-girl group. We were known as Champagne Heat. Julie Kafari, who was just 22 years old at the time, spent hours learning the choreography. She even had a line in the big show. I'm very proud to have been a part of it. So, at the very least, you can't take that pride away from them. Unfortunately, pride is also a sin. Not a nine-circle sin, but a sin nonetheless. But I wanted to get that out of the way because the next part of the winter magic involves those local performers doing things that, for lack of any other term, were a product of the time. Say, yo, you know I'm Friday and I'm talking to you all. I'm your fresh prince for the winter, chilling out, standing tall. Looking good, I'm styling from my head down to my toes. Who's a top hat? I'm a bad cat. Life's fine when it's Dark Lord below me, you're hearing it correctly. An honest-to-Satan 90s rap about Frosty the Snowman complete with a veneer of vanilla ice. Ice man. With a little bit of magic and a little bit of stance. This fresh and funky snowman gonna Just then, a quartet of G-rated fly girls take the next verse. Yo, my snowman crossing, you really got a jet. Maybe we can get a suntan, but you only get wet. Give a high five and a low five now and don't be false. And speaking of which, this would probably be as good a time as any to discuss the real reason why this halftime show is remembered for all the wrong reasons, aside from the patently obvious ones. After years of letting both the football game and the accessories surrounding it steamroll everything in its path, one TV network decided enough was enough. We interrupt regular programming to present the In Living Color Super Halftime Party, live from Hollywood. Brought to you by bite-sized Doritos brand tortilla chips. In Living Color. This story would be incomplete without pointing out the role that the Fox Network would play that night when they decided to air a live halftime edition of sketch comedy show In Living Color in the hopes that it would chip away at the big game's big ratings. Hey, I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking, hey, are these bozos going to make us miss any part of the second half? Yeah! That's where this comes in. Our Super Bowl countdown clock. It'll be coming on later in the show to let you know when to switch back to the second half. You won't miss any of the senseless brutality. <laughs> After all, given the choice between... This and Fire Marshal Bill. Let's just say you're singing an inspirational football song. Rock 'em, sock 'em, kick 'em till you lick 'em. Go. I will always pick Fire Marshal Bill 100% of the time. In fact, 
I did pick Fire Marshal Bill when this first aired because all I cared about was watching whatever team was going to steamroll over the Buffalo Bills that year. And I'm from New York State. <laughs> and rant over as, if you can believe it, the winter magic just keeps on chugging along. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we proudly salute the 1992 Winter Olympics as we welcome Olympic gold medalists Dorothy Hamill, Brian Boitano, and team captain Mike Caruzioni with members of the 1980 Olympic gold medal hockey team. And therein lies our CBS network synergy as well as the logistical implausibility of not only performing figure skating moves during a football game, but the fact that they're doing so on a rink the size of a Walmart kiddie pool. And yet, somehow they're doing it. Day I live, I want to be a day to live. Now, I'm more curious as to whether or not the substance they're skating on is even ice to begin with. Uh, I'll put up the clip in this week's YouTube trailer. I'll let you be the judge there. And while you're judging, let's also salute the 1980 U.S. hockey team 12 years after the fact with a variation of a song sung by a guy who passed away two months after the fact. Now, one might think there should be absolutely zero connection between the Olympics, their hockey team of long ago, and the music of Queen. A band which, again, to remind you, their lead singer had just passed away two months before this happened to take place. And you're absolutely right. There should be absolutely no connection between these three. Never mind the fact that this will probably be the closest Queen will ever get to performing at the halftime show. Which brings us to our halftime headliner. Somebody whose presence should fully embody the overall theme of winter magic. Somebody who knows a thing or two about icy climates. And considering the vast wealth of musical talent that the city of Minneapolis is known for, the one who answers the call should indeed be obvious. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Miss Gloria Estefan. Okay, You're at a football game. A big football game. One that's taking place in one of the coldest parts of the country in winter. A city that throughout the 1970s and 80s practically reinvented itself as a mecca for dance, funk, and R&B music among other musical styles that saw a boost there during that time. Granted, a lot of acts from that area haven't reached levels of prominence in 1992. And yet, Gloria Estefan, who I'm not knocking by any means. She is marvelously talented and has earned every last ounce of her fame over the years. But she's from Miami. Via Cuba. 
a place where the climate has been known to be a little warm from time to time. And yet, here she is, performing in Minneapolis to close out a show called Winter Magic. Do you not see the disconnect here? As a reminder, this was the winter of 1992. And if my calculations are correct, Kurt Cobain should be changing the trajectory of popular music at that point in time. Too bad Nirvana couldn't be the headliner, nor anybody else whose roots were in the Twin Cities. I mean, I'm pretty sure Prince was busy anyway, and yes, his time would eventually come 15 years later. But how narrow of mind would the football people had to have been to not even consider batting an eye towards the likes of Morris Day in the Time? Apollonia, The Revolution, Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers bringing the entire band there, or fucking Bob Dylan, before shrugging their shoulders saying, we give up, and hiring Gloria Estefan to play Latin music for a crowd of people who probably didn't know what Latin music was in the first place. Hell, they couldn't even get the people who did Funky Town to make an appearance. All in all, Winter Magic was beyond a chaotic mess. And it's no wonder people abandoned the show in droves to watch In Living Color instead. Not only did they chip away at them with an estimated 22 million people watching that counter-programming, but for the first time in many years, ratings for the game overall actually went down, going from a 41.9 rating in 1991 to a 40.3 the year after which may seem a little trivial and arbitrary, but it was just enough of a knee-jerk reaction for the football people to take notice and make sure that they wouldn't embarrass themselves ever again. Intentionally. So, gone were the spectacle shows, and in came the mini-concerts. And I believe we all know what happened next. Quite honestly, I've become way too lightheaded over how much this halftime show pissed me off. Scott, I encourage, nay, implore you to talk for several minutes about winter magic while I get some Pepto-Bismol. I don't even know where to start with this. This is the most bizarre and bad halftime show I've ever seen. And this is why I think nowadays they just take somebody who's a well-known performer, have them go out there and give a mini concert at halftime, whether it's Beyonce, who looks great and sounds great, or somebody like the Rolling Stones, who don't look as great, but obviously sound great because they're the Rolling Stones. It's something simple, something basic, and you don't have the potential of having something like this disaster happen. When I first watched this, and I had completely put this out of my memory from when I had originally watched it, I couldn't believe how confusing and bad it was this felt like a terrible show at the Magic Kingdom. Like if you took your kids to the Magic Kingdom or you were eight years old and you went to the Magic Kingdom and you saw this show there, you would say, wow, that's a really bad show for little kids. But to put this on during halftime of the Super Bowl is just so weird with these people just walking around and singing the same song over and over again in these terrible costumes. Like I said, it felt like you were at a really bad Disney Park show that you just couldn't get out of for some reason. It's no wonder why so many people and mass turned the channel 
to Fox at the time and watched In Living Color, which was a great show to begin with, that whole showcase there did so many favors for the Fox network, which I can't imagine was the intention of the actual Super Bowl broadcast to force other people to go to another network and watch better shows. And that's actually what ended up happening in future years. If you remember, you had other networks taking advantage of the fact that people didn't like the halftime shows. WWF did halftime heat with The Rock versus Mick Foley for the WWF title at the time. They did a title change. You had one halftime year where they did a Beavis and Butthead special where Beavis gets deported to Nicaragua as the Great Cornholio character. I am the Great Cornholio. And that was what people were watching at halftime. So this set all of this emotion. That's how bad this Winter Magic halftime show was. Like I said, it felt like you were trapped in a terrible kids show at the Magic Kingdom and you couldn't get out of it. Unless, of course, you had the remote control at the time and then you just changed the channel to Fox to watch In Living Color and saw a much better show. But after this is when I think executives had to start understanding that they needed to give people something simple, something basic, and something easily digestible at halftime instead of whatever this tried to be. Tell you what, Scott, I'm still not quite over what I just saw. Why don't you close things out by telling us what you feel is your personal worst halftime show? Really? Even if there's a lot of music in it? It's cool. I can edit. Uh, trust me, I'm, I'm still not quite myself yet. Just go ahead. Narrator, I'll tell you the one that sticks out in my mind. It probably wasn't the worst one, but for some reason, I've just always felt like it was terrible, and it gives me bad flashbacks when I think about it. The National Football League presents the Bridgestone Super Bowl 45 halftime show. I guess part of this for me is that I've never really understood the appeal of the Black Eyed Peas. Like, what is it that they're supposed to be? What is it they're supposed to do? Why am I supposed to be entertained by them? Their songs are pretty bad. I know they're supposed to be catchy, but they're not, and they're simple and bad. And so I just remember this halftime show being really awful and wondering why Slash wasn't playing more. So it's not as bad as Winter Magic or anything like that, but this was the one that stuck out in my head when I'm asked to think about shows from the past that were done at halftime, because I just remember sitting there thinking, what exactly is it that this halftime show is trying to be, and why am I even watching it? Why am I not going up and getting some buffalo wings and something to drink right now instead of subjecting myself to this? If you want the truth, and I know this is going to border on just a little bit above blasphemous, I don't think there should be a halftime show at the big game at all. Not because of how overhyped and overrated it's become, but because of just how much pre-game and post-game entertainment there is surrounding the actual game itself. The pre-game show is a good six hours long, the post-game still tacks on another hour after the confetti flies, and that's to say nothing of the random TV show that gets to air as soon as the game ends in the hopes that that big game's ratings can be used as a springboard to launch that new show. 
which, more or less, is something that we're going to be covering the next time we open up the doors to... The Big Game Hall of Shame. Because trust me, some of those shows deserve their own wing of the hall. These creatures are still going. I'm just about ready to rip my ears off. Don't go Van Gogh on me just yet. Let me take a look through my bag of ex machinas. I'm sure there's a way to stop these caterwaulers. Ah, okay. According to the Handbook of the Dam, the best way to stop a banshee is to use either a holy relic of some kind or a weapon made of pure gold. Even Money says, I don't think you're going to find anything holy down here. No, but I do know of something that's made of gold that I can use. Keep holding your ears. I'll be right back. Hey, Harpies, I got a gift for you from Charlie Daniels. Boy, wait, so you mean to tell me that the devil went down to Georgia was a real story? Well, that's our story, and we're sticking to it. These gold fiddles are actually a dime a dozen down here. You have no idea how many people tried to challenge the boss to a fiddle contest since that song came out. Have you challenged him? <laughs> are you kidding? Did you not just hear how sour the notes I played were? If I challenged him, I'd be looking at triple eternity with my pants down. Ask a stupid question. Uh-oh, it's game time. Well, we hope you enjoyed whatever the here that was as our halftime show. It's time for the second half of Hell Bowl 3 Billion, where the four horsemen of the apocalypse are simply atomizing the New York Jets by a score of 11 million to 3. Narrator, what do you think the Jets should do to improve their chances in the second half? I can think of a number of things. Better ball players, better financial decisions, a quarterback whose ankle is more durable than tinfoil, and maybe even moving the stadium they play at to a less cursed location, like a Native American burial ground. And somehow, even I don't think that's gonna be enough to help them, as we get the kickoff from the Horsemen of War. And it's a full-on stampede on the field as the Jets are literally and figuratively getting trampled and not a flag on the play in sight. <laughs> Better brace yourselves, folks. This is going to be a long half. <laughs> Next time on Telehell. Speaking of overhyped and overrated annual television events... That was almost bound to happen. The, probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. Until then... If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. It is absolutely a pleasure to have done this show with Scott Mason, the host of Play Like a Jet. Believe it or not, he contacted me out of the blue saying that he loved the show, particularly the Manimal episode, and he wanted to do something. And who am I to say no to a humble request? You can listen to Play Like a Jet wherever you hear podcasts, or you can visit him at playlikeajet.com. 
The part of a Hell Dome PA announcer was played by Rob Maurer. And now, here are the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. You know that thing that people do in order to communicate with each other without actually having to look each other face to face? You know, social media? Well, we do that. Look for us on X, Facebook, and now Blue Sky. All three of them at Telehell Podcast. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and pretty much tell us what you think of our show everywhere that you can stream us. And also in our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com.